The researchers concluded that the part of the pain network associated with its emotional qualities, but not its sensory qualities, mediates empathy for suffering. So the firsthand experience of pain, as well as the knowledge that somebody we love is in pain, activates the same brain circuits. That makes a lot of sense, and I think is like a huge... That makes it understandable why we feel empathy at all. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about compassion fatigue. Having a sense of compassion for our partners and our loved ones is crucial to having happy relationships. However, sometimes there are moments when we can't be as compassionate as we would like because we're experiencing compassion fatigue. Today, we're going to talk about compassion fatigue, the science behind it, what it is, and some practical ways to renew yourself when you're caring for others. First, let's define compassion. So we covered compassion as a topic back in episode 274. This is the definition that we used in that episode. Compassion is an emotion that is a sense of shared suffering, most often combined with a desire to alleviate or reduce the suffering of another, to show special kindness to those who suffer. Compassion essentially arises through empathy and is often characterized through actions wherein a person acting with compassion will seek to aid those they feel compassionate for. So, sounds pretty great, right? But let's talk about compassion fatigue. And you can't talk about compassion fatigue without talking about Dr. Charles Figley. (laughs) Actually, this is the first time I've seen his name was prepping for this episode. Uh, But anyway, he's the psychologist who popularized the term, and he defines it this way. Compassion fatigue is a state experienced by those helping people or animals in distress. It is an extreme state of tension and preoccupation with the suffering of those being helped to the degree that it can create a secondary traumatic stress for the helper. So first, I want to check in with the two of you. Have you heard of this term before? Because like in my field of work, you know, where I'm like working with clients, it gets thrown around all the time with you know, counselors, therapists, nurses, especially compassion fatigue is this really well-known topic. But I realize that to some people this may be totally new. And so, I mean, are the two of you familiar with this? Have you come across this before? I didn't know about it beforehand, but upon reading about it, I definitely know that I've felt it before. <laughs> so that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just know about this because, Dedeker, you introduced me to the term maybe a year ago or something. Mm. and was just like, oh, gosh, yeah. And it definitely see when that shows up sometimes. So it's also known by other names. I think, as Emily was saying, a lot of people are familiar kind of with the the concept or the the feeling or the experience of it. Some other names for it are things like secondary traumatic stress or vicarious traumatization, empathic distress, toxic empathy, or burnout is another term used for mm. it sometimes. Yeah, but for the purposes of this episode, we're going to distinguish compassion fatigue from burnout. So burnout, you know, this is something that a lot of us talk about these days. And burnout can occur from working long hours or being in super high pressure or demanding environments at home or at work. Uh, Whereas compassion fatigue specifically refers to the negative effects that can come from helping or caring for others. So there's a bit of a distinction there. So it's not just like fatigue, fatigue. It's specifically compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue. Yeah, just that part of yourself or giving, I guess, that Mm. specific part can, can be fatigued as well. And compassion fatigue presents on a spectrum, not as a binary. So it's not just like you're either fatigued or you're not, or, you know, you have no compassion or you do. It is on a spectrum as well. Yeah, there's a lot of theories out there about not only what compassion fatigue actually is, but also what causes it. And 
we're going to get deeper into the more interesting parts of the science behind this a little bit later, but just to scratch the surface of this a little bit, you know, the predominant theory out there is that it is overuse of compassion in your work or in your environment that leads to compassion fatigue. So almost the same way that we think about decision fatigue, how we have a certain amount of decision-making energy in a day. And then when we have to make a lot of decisions over and over and over, that gets depleted to the point where it becomes just a lot harder to make even small decisions. And so the prevailing theory is the same with compassion, is that when we're in a position of having to call in our compassion over and over and over and over and over again, that eventually the well runs dry and there's some negative effects on us. It becomes harder to draw on that compassion. There are also some theories actually on the opposite side that it might be underuse of compassion or really not being able to complete your empathic response. And that's actually what leads to the fatigue. So for so example- if you have like a little bit of compassion, if you're not used to being compassionate, but then like a little bit comes up, you're like, I'm fatigued well, now. So for example, any situation where you as the helper or you as the person feeling compassion are needing to hold back and not act on that compassion, or if you're needing to hide your own emotions or vulnerabilities while helping others. So this could be a wide range of things. Yeah, it could be like a doctor where, you know, you really can only go so far to feel compassion or like really give a compassionate response to someone who's going through a really terrible time, even if it may be very distressing to you, but you have to kind of keep your emotions in check really any professional. I think this mostly shows up as a workplace thing where you have to be professional, even if you're in a helping profession like a therapist or a counselor where there's really only so far you feel like you can go, there's only so far that you can emote, there's only so much of your own emotions you can let come to the forefront. And so there are some theories that say that's the fatiguing part is not actually like kind of having to keep your compassion in check, even though you feel it. There's this Diana Fosha who's written a lot of really fascinating stuff and specifically about therapists and counselors. She says, you know, we are wired to care, but trained to be neutral Mm. and that that's a hard place to be in, you know, that as human beings, we naturally do have an empathic response to other people's pain. And yet we're often in situations where we just can't necessarily act on it. So I, I'd never heard that side of compassion fatigue before that it that it could be that of like kind of having to hold back your reaction. That's that's really interesting because I can definitely think of some situations in my life where I've had that struggle, but I guess it felt different from other times when I've identified it as compassion fatigue. So I don't know. That's that's interesting that maybe they're even two different things that are kind of both related to compassion in a way. Yeah, and this is again, this is a little bit of a spectrum. There's there's not a black and white sense of oh, this person is 100% in compassion fatigue and this one not. Sometimes it's hard to measure. Sometimes we start to get into semantics, you know, of mm-hmm. like is it compassion, is it empathy, is it vicarious trauma, is it all these things, you know, where these things are measured slightly differently and felt slightly differently. So it's sometimes a little bit amorphous. Um, and so that may explain why you know people's experiences and also the causes of compassion fatigue can be a little bit different. But we're going to get into this a little bit more later on in the episode when we talk about current studies on compassion fatigue. Right. So we've mentioned this a little bit before, but places where compassion fatigue can show up helps a lot in helping professions. So things like therapists, social workers, counselors, Also, crisis workers like EMTs, nurses, hospice workers, doctors, police officers, and then aid work, like humanitarian work, volunteer work, things like that. And then also with activism and social justice work. There's a quote here from Jacqueline de Twyler. I hope that's how you say her last name. Jacqueline de Twyler, who says, quote, we are shouldering a burden of protecting each other that should be shouldered by companies, institutions, and the state, and it is crushing us. Just talking about that, if you're out there trying to fight for social justice and activism, it it is a lot of weight to carry and can have negative health effects for those people doing it. Also, helping a partner or multiple partners, friends, family members, if they're going through really difficult times— A non-monogamous example could be that you have a partner who's going through jealousy or through extended relationship drama with a metamor, 
I'm also curious, I thought about if you have a partner or a friend who is upset with something that you did or that they perceived, you know, having a triggering response to something that you said or whatever, and how challenging it can be to be compassionate towards that. Like you can and you want to help them, but only to a point perhaps. And eventually it does become fatiguing, especially when it's like the trigger is about you. Hmm. 100%. Yes, 100%. It makes me think of often couples that I work with who are recovering from some major breach of trust, Mm, which could traditionally be something like infidelity, but doesn't necessarily have to be that. It could be any number of things. And yeah, I think anytime we're in a position where our partner is hurt because of something that we did or something that we said, already it takes effort to meet that with compassion, right? Already it takes a lot of emotional effort to not slip into defensiveness, to (laughs) not throw it back at them, to not escalate the situation, to be able to listen and be compassionate and meet your partner or your friend's emotions and accept those. And then if it keeps going, you know, as these things do, like if someone's really, really hurt, it's not always a one and done where it gets processed and then complete, where sometimes they need to revisit it and need to come back to it. And that can get fatiguing very, very, very quickly. Like it's really common. I've seen with couples who are working through some kind of breach of trust where, you know, the partner who maybe made the breach of trust gets to a point of just like, oh my God, like how many times can we go over this? How many times can I apologize? How many times you know, that it does just become fatiguing. I would imagine that 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 situation also then is hitting that thing of kind of needing to hold back, like we talked about before, where it's like you're trying to be compassionate about something you did, but also like because it's about you, you're kind of having to like, I don't know, I guess sort of be a little more neutral than maybe you would if they were talking about something someone else did, where you could kind of more fully like express your compassion for their feelings. And instead there's a bit of that, like the effort that comes from maintaining neutrality. I could see that also, you know, or like you said, Dedeker, like the effort to not get defensive or to make excuses or something like even that effort can kind of add to that fatigue. Yeah. I'm also things like just watching the news, especially news about the pandemic. I mean, that fatigue also, it it can make us just kind of go numb at this constant barrage of like terrible things that are happening in the world. So that makes a lot of sense to, to get fatigued with your yeah. compassion. Yeah, I mean, and just, I mean, so much world news, right? Because often it's not very good news. And yeah. there was this really interesting quote from... I found so many, so many PowerPoints that people have done on compassion fatigue because it strikes me that this is a really common quote-unquote workplace wellness presentation that shows up in a lot of industries. And so I found a lot of people's slides. And But this particular quote I really liked that, you know, it can be the realization of many painful realities that we may be powerless to change or affect. And yeah, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the fact that this is such an interesting time period in human history with access to global news, where on the one hand, it's a really good thing and it's really good to be informed, but also just to think about how, I mean, my armchair evolutionary psychologist theory is that it's like our friends haven't quite caught up to that level of being able to absorb and understand just the full extent of like global human suffering, you know, yeah. like like having such a hard time connecting to suffering on that scale where, yeah, like you said, either it's totally numbing and we just can't connect to it or it's completely overwhelming. But like either way, either it activates so much of our compassion that it gets depleted or I think like you're talking about, Jace, we're not really able to complete the empathic response on that scale. And so that becomes really tiring as well. Yeah, I think also with the news, it's just that it's the whole thing of, yes, we have access to learn about all of the suffering in the world, and we're not being given in equal measure all the neutrality in the world or positive things. Like, we're kind of getting mm-hmm. this filtered thing because it's the one that gets this reaction from us. And I know I yeah. go on this rant all the time, so I'm not going to do it now, but it's just... It's a real shitty thing that the in like the commercialization of news has done to all of us, I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So 
Compassion fatigue can also show up if, for instance, you're caring for a loved one, like a loved one who is aging or a loved one who is chronically ill or who has a disability that needs care. You know that that's another thing that can draw on your compassion reserves and become really depleting over time. Same thing with parents raising children, whether you're raising a child that has more needs than average or even just a regular child, like depending on your situation, you know, parenting calls on that compassion a lot, especially if you're trying to really be a good, gentle, loving parent. I was curious to hear from the two of you, because it seems like the two of you really have connected to the fact that like you felt this before, you felt this sense of compassion fatigue and like where and when has it shown up for the two of you? I Well, like I said, a friend or with a partner who, yeah, it was upset about something that I did and eventually just being over it, over having to hear about how awful I was in that moment or whatever. But also I see it, I, I have a lot of doctors in my life and I see it with a particular friend of mine who is a radiation oncologist and, you know, sees trauma and death and, and people dying every single day. I... And I think how challenging it is to also go home and be with, you know, a a husband and a kid and and be compassionate towards them and their trials and tribulations, you know, that might have happened during the day. I think that, yeah, for a lot of people in that industry, it's got to be really difficult to, to have compassion not only for you know, the moment that you're in and the people that you're seeing in your profession, but then stepping outside of that as well and like having to give even more of yourself to the people that you love. It's just, it's tough, I'm sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I I feel like we've covered all of the main ways it shows up. I feel like with news, it's kind of like each year there's like some other thing that really gets you and we talk about it a lot and can lead to fatigue. I think also when people first kind of, I guess, like awaken to some sort of injustice in the world that they were not aware of, such as like becoming aware of some part of their privilege and how other people don't get that, that they weren't before, or sort of becoming aware of how, like of the real life effects of something like sexism or racism that they kind of knew about but didn't really get beforehand. And once that sinks in, I feel like that can kind of lead to that situation of just feeling like helpless and like, I need to fix it all right now because I need to make this feeling go away. And then that kind of leads to frustration and anger that needs to get directed somewhere or maybe going numb or, you know, there's just all sorts of things that can happen in those situations, some of which are compassion fatigue. Yeah. Well, How can this look when you are fatigued and when you can't, you know, you don't feel like that compassion is really at your fingertips in the way that it always generally is? It can look like exhaustion, things like irritability, uh, lack of empathy or compassion, numbness, cynicism. Yeah, I, for me, with the work that I do, like working with clients, there are some days where like sometimes I I show up to dinner and I know to both Alex and to Jace, I've said this sometimes like half jokingly and half seriously, that'll get to the end of the day. And I'll just be like, okay, I'm out of empathy. So I'm sorry if you need any empathizing. I just, I don't got it. I can't empathize with anything. You got it. You're on your own for the rest of the evening. (laughs) And again, like mostly it's joking, but then there is a part of me that feels that way where I'm just like, I can't listen to any more problems. I I can't offer any more like grace or kindness or care because I just feel like I've used it all up at the end of the day sometimes. Do either of you, have you ever had someone in your life who really gravitates toward upsetting stories and wants to share them with you? Because I've encountered this a few different times in my life with people who've been in my life quite a bit, who just, it's kind of like they're kind of small talk is like, oh, you know, I heard about this thing with someone whose you know, daughter was hit by a car in their neighborhood and, and just like kind of just going into like retelling and reliving the suffering of some stranger, stranger to me mm. and often a stranger to them too. Or like, oh, I heard about this, this random thing that happened to this person in Israel that was just so awful. They were killed by a cement mixer. Yeah, I don't know. I just made that one up. But like some terrible traumatic story that they just love those things. I have mm. found that, uh, like, at least for myself, like, I, I feel like I'm a pretty 
compassionate, empathetic person that I just find like too much of that. I just, I'm like my whole day, I'm upset the rest of my day because of this one random story that I think to them felt like small talk, or maybe they were trying to process it or something, but it's like these, I know certain people who just kind of always gravitate to these stories and love to talk about those. And I I find them just kind of have to like distance myself or even just be like, oh, oh gosh, look at the time. I really got to go. Cause it's just, I'm like, I don't want to use up my compassion on this. So I've got a lot mm-hmm. of better things to use it on today. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It's like you need a little meter attached to your shirt or something. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I'm this full. <laughs> That's smart. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna dole it out. Yeah. I, it can also manifest as resentment toward the person or the people that you're caring for. Yeah, I mean, even if you are in like a profession like that, perhaps you might be resentful towards those people that you are caring for, or if it's a loved one as well. Yeah, um, definitely. Also, yeah, PTSD symptoms, so physiological arousal, intrusive thoughts, disassociation, and also bottled up emotions. Yeah, so, I mean, the PTSD symptoms, this is why compassion fatigue is sometimes called vicarious traumatization or secondary, you know, like stress disorder or things like that is that they find with people who are exposed to other people's trauma constantly, especially in the line of their work without having anything there to help them balance it out or process it or things like that, that they can kind of take on uh, like similar PTSD symptoms, even if they themselves didn't go through the particular trauma. And Often it's at some, you know, sometimes it's to a lesser degree, you know, it's not exactly, you know, carbon copy PTSD response as though they were the primary receiver of that trauma. But, you know, people do report, you know, having weird dreams or, Mm. you know, these intrusive thoughts or having their heart race, even when they're thinking about a particular client or things like that, that can show up just by being exposed in that way. Yeah. Other ways this can look is kind of maybe secondary to this, but it's things like self-medicating. And by that, you know, generally meaning drugs and alcohol could be actual, you know, pharmacy type drugs. But I feel like usually when we say self-medicating, we're talking more about things you can buy over the counter. Could also be just like a dread of work or a dread of a particular person. I guess I kind of mentioned that with like the dread yeah, of you did. person telling me these upsetting That's stories. True. Shoot. There you go. Shoot. Mm. Uh, could also look like isolation right? Of just kind of retreating into your shell and like not having any time for anybody, any energy for anyone. Also could show up as really poor boundaries or incredibly rigid boundaries or kind of a cycle of both between like really standing up for yourself and be like, no, I can't. And then other times just like giving in to every beck and call from everyone and every demand and every request for help, regardless of whether you can provide it or not. Yeah, I I think I've seen this. Usually it does become this cycle where it's like because someone has poor boundaries on the front end that then they will realize like, oh my God, this is depleting me and this is too much. And then they'll pendulum swing the complete opposite way to these very, very rigid boundaries of Mm. just like, no, get the hell away from me. No, I can't help. No, 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 no. And then it's just this kind of constant swinging back and forth. Yeah, and there's another quote from Jacqueline de Twiler, who we quoted before, who's talking about in activism and and social justice work is it feels perverse to recoil from those who need our help. So we don't. It's kind of that thing of like, even if you don't have any left to give and this is harming yourself, it's like, well, but I can't say no to these people because these are the people I'm trying to help. And then lastly, this could look like denial of all of the above and just pretending it doesn't exist. You know, just nope, nope, this isn't me. I'm totally fine. Totally fine. Yeah, I think especially for people who have picked professions that are helping professions that there can also be the sense of like guilt, like if you're feeling fatigued by this, maybe this isn't the right position for you, or maybe you're not cut out for this, or maybe this isn't really the job that you want to have. And so that can really foster a culture of also wanting to deny that, you know, that there even is such a thing as compassion fatigue, or that, you know, having to hold compassion for people day in and day out has any impact on you. So we're going to go on and talk about some of the research and some of the studies that are done about compassion fatigue. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors for this episode. It really helps us out a lot if you go and check them out. They directly support this show to help keep it coming to all of y'all out there for free. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. And we're back, and we're going to be talking about the interesting science behind compassion fatigue. So there are many, 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 many studies about compassion fatigue, mostly studies with the purpose of trying to figure out how to alleviate it. And that makes sense. As we run into with other topics, our culture, our workaday capitalist culture popularizes anything that helps us to understand, oh, how do we get our workers to be even more efficient and work even longer without all their pesky emotions or human needs getting in the way? And so it makes a lot of sense where we're like, huh, interesting, our nurses, hmm, they're getting really fatigued by doing this, huh? Okay, can we understand what it is that they're going through and how to fix it so that they don't have to take as much time off, you know, so that we don't have to (laughs) invest in actually giving them a good quality of life at work. Like, I think it makes a lot of sense that there's a lot of studies about this. And most of them are about that, about fixing compassion fatigue specifically. If you're interested in that, you can just Google compassion fatigue study and you'll find a billion hits and a lot of really interesting information. But today we're going to look at two papers in particular that stood out to me, that, that are connected to each other as well. So the first is findings from a 2011 study led by Dr. Tanya Singer of the Social Neuroscience Lab at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Germany. Sounds Try like the nerdiest place that. on earth, and I love it. Yeah, yeah. Try saying that 12 times fast. Well, wow. it's in Germany, so it'd be like the Max Planck Institute. Max Planck Institute, yeah. All right. In the study, they used married couples as subjects and hooked them up to fMRI scanners. So one partner, this sounds awful, by the way, (laughs) one partner would have a painful stimulus applied to their hand and the other partner would be able to see and hear their reaction to the pain. How painful are we talking here? I think in the study, it was probably just like a little electric shock. You know, I don't think it was anything very intense. Could have been like a rubber band. I think the intention was just a tiny pain response, but something that would provoke a response. I wonder, like, who, like, volunteered for that? And who yeah, was the local oh, like, like, <laughs> Yeah, did we also study how the partners negotiated who was the Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. They probably didn't get to choose. Yeah, yeah I don't think yeah, so. Hopefully not. All right, so areas of the anterior insula and the anterior middle cingulate cortex were activated when subjects received pain, but also when they observed that their partner experienced pain. So basically what, like, the same brain waves were happening when like you see it. brain so, areas Yeah, that's like the empathy. Like, literally, it's occurring in your brain like it's happening to you. That's yes. really interesting. 
The researchers concluded that the part of the pain network associated with its emotional qualities, but not its sensory qualities, mediates empathy for suffering. So the firsthand experience of pain, as well as the knowledge that somebody we love is in pain, activates the same brain circuits. That makes a lot of sense, and I think is like a huge... It, that makes it understandable why we feel empathy at all. Well, and it's it, this is making me think about mirror neurons, which is also an interesting thing in, in neuroscience, but they're basically neurons that go alongside all of our regular neurons that specifically react to other people going through things. And it's like what leads us to, if we see someone smiling, it's sometimes hard not to also smile. Or I guess to see someone in pain, not to also feel some amount of that. And it's, I think is why things like movies are effective because mm. we're not going through these things, but we almost feel like we are because we're watching people and we're kind of, our mirror neurons are looking at that, seeing that, recreating that feeling inside ourselves. Even sometimes, physically, like if we cry along with someone in a movie or something like that. So it's, yeah, that's really interesting and makes a lot of sense that that, that would show up that way. So the second paper to talk about builds on the findings of the first one. And the second paper is titled, Compassion Does Not Fatigue! Exclamation point. <laughs> Exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> this was published in 2018 in the Canadian Veterinary Journal written by Dr. Trisha Dowling, who is, guess, a, a veterinary doctor. <laughs> so it turns out that compassion fatigue shows up when you work with animals as well. Of and course it of does. Of course, right? <laughs> so in I, this don't know, I don't know if anyone's done a study of like where they take you and your dog and oh no. see if your brain lights up when your dog gets like spotted on the snoot. Aw, jeez. Oh, I would like I'd to rather know. I get snot slotted, yeah. slotted on the snoot <laughs> than the dog. Jeez. But what about the opposite? Does your dog care when you're in That's pain? what I was going to say. I want to know if my dog I'd actually be really cares interested. Is this a one-way yeah. transaction or what? Right, or is your dog just like, food? Food? No food yeah, no. I get food at the end of this, right? We're cool. <laughs> okay, so, so in this paper, compassion does not fatigue. Dr. Dowling <laughs> makes the argument that Empathy is necessary to establish a social social connection with another human being, but from there it can either turn into empathic concern and compassion, or it can turn into empathic distress. Yeah, and so Dr. Dowling is kind of making this distinction that it's the empathic distress that is the fatiguing thing, not the empathic concern or compassion. So basically she makes the argument that you know, we feel empathy first. Like, we can't really avoid that, right? Especially if our brains are literally wired to have that empathy response, to, like, feel that pain almost as though we are feeling the pain, you know, that we're observing. But then what the empathy turns into, whether it turns into compassion or into distress, is highly dependent on our capacity for what's known as self-other differentiation. And there's been plenty of studies on this as well. Basically, when self-other distinction becomes blurred, we really do take on the emotional pain of the other person as our own pain. And that just puts us into empathic distress, you know, where it is just like really fatiguing for our systems. Because basically what they find is that when subjects are in a state of empathic distress, it depletes the dopamine levels in our brain. And so that mm. means it our ability to experience pleasure is decreased our motivation towards natural rewards, especially the natural rewards that would be, you know, the result of our actions, our compassionate action, like our motivation for that decreases. And if we have a chronic depletion of dopamine, that leads to feelings of emotional exhaustion, depression, lack of motivation, you know, irritability, all those things that we listed that are the hallmarks of compassion fatigue. However, compassion goes beyond feeling with the other to feeling for the other. That's the way that Dr. Dowling distinguished it, which I think is really interesting. And specifically when there's compassion that's directed toward the other, when there's more of a sense of the self-other differentiation, those feelings of compassion actually increase dopamine activity as well as oxytocin-related processes, which 
enhance our positive feelings in the face of adverse conditions. Whoa. Right? This is, yeah. And this is really interesting. In the same study, they actually did a brain scan of a Buddhist monk while doing a compassion meditation. So brain scans showed that his experience of empathy had registered in the neural networks associated with pain, whereas the compassion phase of his experience had registered in different neural networks, those associated with positive emotion, maternal love, and feelings of affiliation. The monk described his experience during the compassion meditation as a warm, positive state coupled with a strong desire to be of service. This was in distinct contrast to his earlier experience with empathy, actually empathic distress, which was completely draining and debilitating. So, like the title of this study says, compassion does not fatigue. It is neurologically rejuvenating. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so I thought this is really <laughs> interesting. And again, like I talked about earlier, some of this unfortunately starts to get a little bit murky because of semantics, because you know, we have to distinguish compassion from empathy in this case. And Dr. Dowling is making the argument that at least from a brain chemistry level, there is a distinction between empathy and compassion as far as like how our brains experience it. Out in the real world, we don't always necessarily make that distinction. And I think sometimes it's hard to even feel or tell when is it just empathy? When is it compassion? You know, how do those things feel differently to my brain and to my body? I think this one's interesting, too, because I'm not exactly sure where this comes from, but I know that I definitely experienced this, is kind of this idea that if someone else is suffering and I'm then suffering with them, that, that that's somehow good, like that I'm somehow helping them or I'm somehow like taking that on for them so they don't have to suffer as much or, or something. There's like some kind of idea there that I think we kind of can can sometimes glorify in a way that kind of suffering on someone else's behalf and the irony of it and the thing that that kind of was like a big wake up call for me because I was someone who very much did this was kind of when I forget how this happened but when it was sort of pointed out to me that that's not actually helping anyone and in fact often it's making it worse because then you end up in a situation where they're almost feeling like they need to help you then, mm. or now other people are needing to help you and you're kind of spreading this around rather than focusing your compassion on, I guess, maybe more of this kind of self-other differentiation of like having compassion and how can I help this person who's suffering rather than how can I like get all kind of riled up and like really feel how, how awful that is. And that like, I find that actually makes me less able to help or to do anything about it than... I, I don't know, then then like letting them be the one who's doing the suffering, but trying to offer how to help. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It reminds me, I think in the therapeutic community, like basically if we look to like the birth of therapy, which is like, you know, psychological analysis from Freud and things like that, where it starts out in a very unempathetic place. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. The analyst is purely supposed to be this mirror, this blank sheet, just reflecting things back you know, like, it's not about being caring. It's not about empathizing. It's purely just about, like, unpacking and kind of helping someone try to understand their past trauma or their childhood baggage or things like that. And then I think in the last few decades, there was a swing more towards, no, empathy is the big thing. Empathy is the skill that someone who's going to be a therapist or a counselor or a social worker needs to have. Hmm. And now I am seeing that start to shift back a little bit, not to the kind of cold, unfeeling analyst side of the spectrum, but more of the, I think what you're speaking to, Jace, is, you know, feeling with the pain of others is only so helpful. Not that it has zero place or zero function, but ultimately, you know, for the health of the client, also the health of the helper, or the practitioner, it needs to be something a little bit different than just the ability to empathize with somebody. Mm, Middle path yeah. is always the way. Middle path, man. Keep coming back to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what can we do? What can we do about this? Maybe you're listening to this and you're like, yep, got it. Check. Check. Fatigue. Check. <laughs> got it. Toxic empathy. I know what that is. Empathic distress. Whatever you call it, that, got that, it. That is the funny thing. Of, of course, because this has been so extensively studied, there's a lot of assessment tools 
out there for mm. trying to figure out if you are in a state of compassion fatigue or not. However, my favorite was that I found in, in some resource that just said, if you think you have compassion fatigue, you probably do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. It may not need a super rigid measuring tool. So the question then is, what do we do about this? How do we transform the draining qualities of empathy into those more energizing and sustaining qualities? So the answer is a one-two punch of self-care and cultivating compassion skills. Yeah, so so first thing to talk about here is self-care. I always think about this as filling yourself up, that it's like if we talk about it as being drained or being depleted, like you need to put things back in, you need to recharge in some way. And this is pretty common advice around compassion fatigue specifically. So of course the basics like food, that's appropriate for your body, movement that's appropriate for your body, the amount of sleep that you need to be functioning and have as good of health as you can possibly give yourself. Things like just being able to communicate what's going on with the people around you, you know, just being honest with your partners or family members or friends or therapists that, hey, I'm experiencing this, you know, just to let people in so that they know. Things like actual rest and what I mean by that is I think we can get so depleted that at the end of the day, the only thing we have energy for is just being on the couch with Netflix and mm -hmm. or just being on the couch and phone scrolling. And those things have a time and a place. They're not necessarily bad in and of themselves. But I think I have found that sometimes those activities can actually be a little bit of a net zero. Like they're not exactly filling you back up or not exactly energizing activities. Sometimes it's almost kind of, I think of it almost as like a breaking even activity. And especially mm -hmm. if you're like sitting and scrolling social media and maybe subjecting yourself to like more feelings of depression or anxiety or jealousy Gosh, or yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever not it a great is. Solution. It's a negative. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, probably not helping to rejuvenate you. So <laughs> as far as actual rest, that could be things like naps it could be meditation and mindfulness. It could be sensory deprivation, whether that's you want to drop a bunch of money on a fancy, going to a fancy float tank or do the much more affordable sensory deprivation of just like burritoing yourself up in a blanket and just sitting in a dark room for a few minutes or sitting in a closet. I'm telling you, it works. Yeah, you know, Deckard if, has if, done that before. Yeah, <laughs> it feels if, I think it feels weird to be like, I'm going to go lay on the bed and like not look at my phone and not watch TV. I'm just going to lay there. It's not even going to be a nap. I'm just going to be in the dark. Like it sounds and feels weird, but I'm telling you, I swear by it. It mm -hmm. it really does some amazing things for your brain. Just just earlier today, I found myself in this situation where I was just like, I feel awful and terrible and like anxious and stressed. And I was like, I want to just like go sit in a dark room and just like sit on the ground or lie on the ground in a dark room for a little while. Unfortunately, I was not able to do that at that time in the day. But it, and like, then you had compassion fatigue for the two of us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, then you showed up and oh my goodness, Jace. I know because I didn't get that sensory deprivation that I needed. You gotta so do bad. it. Gotta do it. And of course, it can be really helpful to get professional help to see a therapist, see a counselor, find a support group. You can find groups and communities that are tailored specifically to. You know, if it's your profession, if you're a nurse, if you're a therapist yourself, or if you're caring for a loved one or caring for a chronically ill loved one, there's support groups for that as well. Also, you could do things like reading inspirational material, whatever that looks like to you. We talked about stoicism last week, so maybe something like that or the Bible or whatever you like. Uh, creation and expression, maybe go paint. I don't know how to do that. Maybe go cook. I do know how to do that. <laughs> uh, connection, avoiding isolation. Get on the phone with, with a loved one. Go, go outside. Asking for the support and help that you need from a partner. Let others care for you instead of you just constantly caring for others. I think that's easier <laughs> said than done. It is, mm -hmm. yes. I, I agree. We should do an episode on that. How to ask for help. <laughs> Like really though, not only how to ask, but how to actually receive it. I think especially if you're someone who's kind of really like your identities about fixing things for other people, like I really fall into this. It's so mm -hmm. hard to let other people do stuff for you sometimes. Yeah. It's a good idea. Yeah. Um, we'll have to put yep. that in the backlog uh -huh. there. Cool. Yeah. I pet an animal. Love this. My cats <laughs> are huge, huge 
love buckets for me and I get a lot of (laughs) care from them. And then also fostering a separate self. So things like rituals for work on and work off modes or care on and care off modes so that you can kind of like turn off that side of you that is Mm. constantly giving and instead turn on the side that is giving back to yourself. Yeah. So then the the two punch, so that was the one punch of the one-two punch was the (laughs) self-care. And the two punch is cultivating compassion skills. So one thing you could do is just rewind your podcast machine back to last week to our episode on stoicism, where we talked about some exercises for this. You could also look up things like Metta meditation in Buddhism uh, is, you know, all about this kind of developing compassion kind of on a on a global scale and just kind of in general finding ways of zooming out and getting some perspective on the way that you're connected to other people and all the ways that people that you don't even know are all doing things that support you being able to exist in the way you are right now, you know, making sure that you are able to have food and electricity and shelter and that so many people and animals often had to be involved and, you know, plants and everything had to be involved and do so much work before you ever touched these things for you oh, yeah. to be able to have those and just really like understanding and, and trying to get some perspective on how truly interconnected you are to, to so many people and things. Yeah, and kind of the opposite of doing the zoom out is you can also do the zoom in. I read some really interesting stories of people where in their line of work, depending on you know how big of a company they worked for or what position they were in, it became hard to see how is this actually benefiting the world? Who is this actually benefiting? And finding ways to either literally see or conceptually see the individual who is benefiting from your care or from your work so it doesn't feel like it's just going out into the ether out into nowhere but being able to connect to that sense of like i know specifically that this is having an impact on this specific person it could be real or imaginary or you know perhaps an example of like the kind of person that you want to help that that can be a really good way to generate compassion that is more rejuvenating for your work. Of course, you know, Buddhist-based practices, other mindfulness-based practices, those are the ones that have been the most effectively studied as far as studies about generating compassion. Those are the ones that have been shown to be effective. There are plenty of practices outside of that tradition, but just those, these are the ones that I guess have more backing of, of research. So things like Particular mantras can help, visualizations. I mean, if you just do a Google search for like Buddhist-based compassion practices, you'll probably find plenty. There is a Buddhist practice known as Tonglen, Tonglen meditation that comes out of Tibetan Buddhism. And this practice, my goodness, I I haven't done very much of it because it always scares me because of I'm scared of getting compassion fatigued. But I think Mm -hmm. Thinking about it in a different, in this different way of kind of separating self maybe actually be helpful. But basically, Tonglen meditation is you're sitting in meditation and kind of visualizing all the suffering of the world, and you're breathing in other people's suffering and breathing out like relief and gentleness and peace and contentedness to the rest of the world. And it's kind of the opposite that I think usually when we do breath meditation, it's a little bit of like breathe in spirit and breathe out bullshit is sort of the the (laughs) way that our like pop culture meditation Mm. goes. And this is throwing that on its head of actually kind of breathing in pain and transforming that into peace or relief or things like that. This one feels challenging to me, I think, because I'm just like, oh God, how do you not just Mm. like get more fatigued from doing that? Yeah. Yeah, how do you not just break down and cry from doing that? But I do think that it would probably require already having that healthy sense of self separate from other ironically for being a buddhist based practice in order to be able to just kind of hold that sense of compassion giving to the rest of the world we have some other ideas that you can also find if you go back to episode 274 where we covered compassion more extensively and then my last note on this i also just want to acknowledge that there's a fair amount of the factors that cause compassion fatigue that are systemic you know, like helping organizations that don't offer paid time off to their helping professionals or organizations that aren't able to 
are not willing to put the resources into turning inward to care for their own workers or care for their own therapists or nurses or whatever it is. And so just bearing in mind that, you know, if you're in a state of compassion fatigue, that doesn't mean it's just your personal failing and you're not doing a good enough job to take care of yourself. Like some of this is also bigger systems and bigger work systems that are not necessarily within our direct control. So you can also offer yourself a little bit of compassion as well you know, if that's just part of the system that you're in. I thought it was really funny when I was doing all this research that I found a lot of these, you know, workplace PowerPoint presentations about compassion fatigue that did come to the same conclusion of actually, ironically, we need to generate maybe more compassion and less of a sense of just kind of taking on other people's pain. And there was this really funny PowerPoint presentation from a hospice provider in North Carolina where they were, they were talking about Buddhist-based compassion practices, and they're like, we can practice compassion whenever, you know, you can generate compassion when you're in line for the grocery store. We can practice compassion with Northerners. We can practice compassion with Democrats. And it was Whoa. just kind of funny to me just to, <laughs> to think about that radical idea. Well, yeah. How radical, goodness. I know. But I hey, think that you know sentiment what, there is y'all? Absolutely can, true. The sentiment is true. Yeah. We can yeah. practice compassion with people that we don't politically agree with. We can Correct. practice compassion with conservative people, with Republicans, with people who are not as progressive as we are. The sentiment still stands for sure. Yeah. So lastly, for more resources, you can also take a look at episode 216 that was all about emotional support. And also, we highly recommend Googling something called the Caregiver's Bill of Rights that can give you some more thoughts around this whole topic. For our bonus episode today, we're going to be talking about the concept of compassion stamina, which is a little bit different from anything that we've covered here. And specifically, I'm going to talk a little bit about a conversation that I had uh, with Professor Mark Steeman specifically about this topic of compassion stamina. Oh, you had the conversation. It's not I just did. like, well, yeah. how exciting. I can't wait. We want to hear from you. Have you experienced compassion fatigue? We want to hear your answers to that. You find that question on our Instagram stories for this week. Also, the best place to share your thoughts about this episode with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash Multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.